he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Let's seek God's help to understand it. Join me in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you that in our suffering, your person, your work, your gospel, oh, it, it speaks to it. That you have not left us without an answer, that you have not left us without a guide, that you have not left us without steps to follow in as we journey on through this life toward that day when we will see your face. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would help us by the power of your spirit to see your son freshly before our eyes, to see him in these pages, to see the way he suffered, to see what he suffered for, to see how he endured, and that, Lord, you would use this sight of Christ to strengthen us, to grant us hope and and, and faith, and to help us suffer well for the glory of your name and the good of our souls. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my oldest son is currently learning the alphabet. He's getting at the kitchen table, you know, in the mornings, working on his preschool, and he's identifying letters and he's learning their sounds so that he can build the foundation that he needs to read and to write. And an important part of this this process of learning the letters, learning the alphabet, is learning how to write them himself. You know, to be able to identify them, to read, writing them is a critical component of that. And so this is something, writing these letters, it's something he practices by tracing the letters out, placing his blank page over a template, right? And doing his best to learn the capital A by following the pattern line by line by line. This is how you write the letter A. This is what he's working on. And this, actually, you might be surprised to hear, is exactly what Peter is calling us to do when it comes to learning how to suffer. Verse 21 says, reading it again, for to this, that is, suffering, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Christ has given us an example. In the Greek, a term which was used in the first century, get this, of children. <laughs> of children who would trace over letters of the alphabet in order to write those letters correctly. That's where the word it comes from. Peter is saying that we believers, need to trace out, to trace over Christ's suffering. Placing the paper of our lives over the template of his and tracing over that pattern that he's left for us line by line by line. We need to trace out Christ's suffering. And now, in the immediate context of this passage, this instruction, it's initially given to Christian slaves who suffered under unjust masters. We can look back at that in verses 18 through 20. Peter is encouraging them 
to respond with faithfulness and righteousness even when they're wronged because God will not fail to reward them and to right the wrongs done against them on the last day in that final judgment. They can know this. They can have that confidence that he will do these things because of how God worked through the suffering of Christ. And they can, with that confidence, endure under unjust masters. And so, though this was initially applied to this particular situation of their suffering, the principle in view here is applicable to all believers at any time. And though their suffering that's in view here is initially experienced you know, through the mistreatment of, of these Christians by other people, the model that Jesus provides is applicable to any and all kinds of suffering that we could face. And the point Peter's making for us here is that we need to study his suffering so that we can suffer correctly, so that we can suffer faithfully, so that we can suffer as Christians are intended to suffer. Looking to him and learning that this, the way Christ would, would go, would have us go, has shown us by running before us that this is the best way to deal with what stresses us out, to deal with the things that test our faith, to deal with the burdens of our souls by suffering like Christ. And so, as we look to Christ in 1 Peter 2 this morning, we're going to set our sights upon two aspects of his suffering. And they're pretty simple, but not simplistic. Point number one, what Christ didn't do as he suffered. What he didn't do. And point number two, what Christ did as he suffered. Two simple, again, but not simplistic realities to behold today. So, grab your pencils and your paper and get ready to start tracing. Beginning with point number one, we come to what Christ did not do as he experienced suffering. In verses 22 through 23a, the first part of verse 23, make it clear, and we can't miss this, that Jesus did not use his suffering to excuse unfaithfulness. He did not use his suffering to excuse any unfaithfulness on his part. To put it more uh, simply, he did not sin in his suffering. Read with me beginning in verse 22. Peter writes that he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when he was attacked, when he was insulted, when he was slandered, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Christ, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst, as we read back in the Gospel of Mark just recently, as he was brought before men and councils and authorities, and as he was mistreated, as he was falsely accused, as he was called a liar and a blasphemer and a criminal, and as he was subjected to the greatest miscarriage of justice that's ever happened, he did not respond with any injustice on his part underneath such circumstances. The way he responded to suffering was without any unrighteous, unloving, or unfaithful response toward God or other people. None of that entered into his response to that suffering. And listen, this was not because he had an easy go of things, if, if you know the story. And even if, if you do, let me remind you, this was not because he had an easy go of things that he suffered so smoothly. <laughs> we can't say that the kind of suffering that he 
uh, experience, the way he responded, was only possible because, uh, you know, as the perfect man, Jesus lived a life that was free of troubles. <laughs> Far from it. His life was marked by trouble. He was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. Instead, this verse shows us that, as one commentator puts it, the sinlessness of Jesus was not easily attained. He did not live apart from the hostility and hatred of the world in an isolated bubble <laughs> where he brooked no opposition. Rather, he faced insults and severe suffering. Didn't have an easy go, but he lived in the midst of insults and severe suffering and looked it right in the face. But, as he did so, Jesus did not allow his suffering to, to justify any kind of departure from the path of righteousness. As any other man or woman uh, might do when they'd be under that kind of pressure. But, in the language of 1 Peter, he continued doing good, even as others were doing bad to him. And, by the power of his spirit at work in us, he aims to conform us to his likeness, church. So that when suffering presses in on us, what comes out of us looks more and more like the spiritual fruit of Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. More like these things. And less like the bitter and thorny fruit of our flesh, which is worn out from us when we don't direct our suffering in a Godward direction. He's working by his spirit, according to his grace, to make our suffering more and more like his suffering. So that what comes out of us when life presses in is good fruit, not bitter thorns. And this means for us that we need to seek his grace where we're inclined to sin in our suffering. Because we know that trials and the hard things that we face, they expose what's really there in our hearts, don't they? That's the effect that they have upon us. At times, our trials, they refine us. At other times, they reveal where we're most prone to give in to sin and temptation. So responding to Christ's suffering and how he suffered without any unfaithfulness, you and I need to respond to this by asking ourselves the question, how am I prone to sin in my suffering? Because we all know, I don't need to prove it to you, that when things get hard, man, <laughs> temptation hits in a different kind of way, doesn't it? Our, our ability to endure, our ability to stay the course of the narrow path becomes significantly more difficult. It becomes much harder to do these things. We know when suffering presses in, we're more prone than ever to give in to all manner of sin and unfaithfulness in our lives. I can recall a time in my Christian life many years ago where a, a difficult season of suffering that I was experiencing, it really opened wide the doors of temptation. In the case that I was uh, dealing with, I was uh, experiencing disappointed expectations. <laughs> life, as we've heard in Habakkuk and Romans, right, was not going the way I thought it should have been in that moment. Uh, my definition of what was good for me <laughs> was not matching up with God's at that moment in life. And I had even experienced a measure of, of hurt from the way I had been treated by other people around me that I had trusted. And I was frustrated. I was sad. And in the midst of that, the allure and temptation of sin. Even the kind of temptation that not had presented itself in my life for years prior to that point, oh man, it came compellingly upon me 
in an instant, in the midst of that suffering. And so what began as a situation in which, as far as I can know, right, I hadn't caused any of my sufferings by sinning or unfaithfulness. It turned into a situation where, in response to it, I was being tempted towards sin. And though I was in a real sense disappointed and hurt by other people, I wasn't by these things permitted or allowed to, right, respond by giving into the temptation that pressed in upon me, right, to find some form of relief from the difficult emotions that I was facing. I didn't seek out the circumstance that I had found myself in, but at that moment, I was sure responsible for how I faithfully or less than faithfully responded to them. And the point is that the suffering that comes our way, church, it never excuses us to sin. And this is what Jesus shows us. He shows us a different way, a better way. And as some of us learned in our uh, spring class earlier this year from uh, Mr. Tripp, external conditions can only be the occasion for sin, not the cause. Let me say that again. When suffering, when trials, when hardship comes our way, external conditions can only be the occasion for sin, not the cause of our sin. Meaning that we cannot blame our trials, our suffering, we can't blame the difficult people in our life or relationships in our life that are hard, even and especially, right, our spouses and children. We can't blame them or anything or anyone else for our unfaithfulness. Those first century Christian slaves could serve unjust masters and Jesus could suffer at the hands of sinners because in truth, there is no trial in which we cannot respond faithfully and joyfully to God. It would be a lie. It would be something false to say there are trials in which we cannot respond to the glory of God with faithfulness to him and even joy in moments of difficulty. We don't have to accept that that's the case. But we can be tempted to believe it, can't we? And so that was me. But what about you? Ask yourself, when suffering hits and life isn't going your way, and things feel acutely like they are not the way that they should be, and certainly not the way you'd want them to be, how are you tempted in those moments to excuse unfaithfulness? Let's consider a couple categories. In those moments, is it something like retaliation, lashing out, and expressing your frustration in anger toward others when the trials are upon you and the suffering hits? Returning evil for evil, right? Getting even, fighting back. Are you prone to rush in in that direction and move against whatever is causing the suffering in life? Probably in particular, the people who are causing the discomfort and suffering in your life. Does swearing and cursing and speaking of careless words and using your tongue to do damage, is that where you're moving? Is that the temptation that you experience to respond to suffering with reviling in turn? And really, as we think about that, any and all kinds of sinful speech in response to our suffering, is that something that where you find yourself struggling? Because we note this passage here, in particular, though it says kind of a blanket statement, right? Jesus committed no sin, and that means no sin of any kind whatsoever. What does Peter focus on? He focuses on the sins of speech. He in particular notes that Jesus did not sin with his tongue, which, as James would say, 
is the hardest thing any of us would have to control. The tongue (laughs) is capable of blessing and cursing. And a small spark from that tongue, which is set on fire, oh, can cause a lot of devastation. And he goes, look at the perfection of Christ's suffering. That he didn't just not lash out and take a swing at the guards like Peter did with his sword. He didn't even speak evil. He did not even speak threatening or reviling. He did not even speak in such a way as to dishonor God or to be unloving to those around him in the midst of his suffering. So consider, how do you speak about your suffering? How do you talk when things are hard? Do you find yourself prone to unfiltered or unrestrained venting, sharing how you feel and just trying to be honest, and so you resort toward letting out those emotions and anger in a way that's not gracious or healthy or or helpful, as God would have it be? Do you speak about your suffering and the way in in which you're tempted in the midst of it uh, by downplaying the unfaithful ways that you're responding to suffering, or maybe even kind of blame shifting uh, the responsibility that you would have for the actions that you're taking in a moment like that? Saying something like, you know, instead of, hey, I'm tempted (laughs) to do X, Y, or Z thing, to respond to the the suffering and say, well, it made me angry, right? It did it. I, I didn't do that. Or she made me bitter and frustrated. He caused me to be discouraged. And we could shift the blame toward the circumstances, toward the persons, and not deal with the responsibility of how our heart is responding to the suffering. Do you find yourself shifting the blame when things get hard instead of owning the responsibility of your heart in the matter? Do we find ourselves giving in to to gossip and to slander about other people when you feel mistreated? Do you find ungracious criticism coming out of your mouth toward those around you? Unchecked grumbling and complaining <laughs> being the constant you know, chorus uh, of, of your life when things are rough. Without gratitude, without thanksgiving, but grumbling and complaining being your primary vocabulary. Or in just any way you can think about it, do you find yourself speaking about your suffering without reference to God or his purposes or what he might be doing in this? but kind of looking at it in isolation from his good purposes for you. We could go on, but there's plenty of ways we might sin in our suffering by speaking poorly about it. And so ask yourself, how am I speaking about my suffering? But that's not all. (laughs) The temptations abound, don't they? We could also be prone to to sin in our suffering by pursuing some kind of method of comfort-seeking, right? of letting off steam, of, of soothing our aching souls, that is, anything along the lines of destructive, <laughs> trying to, you know, escape and avoid, something that's indulgent, self-medicating, or in some way dishonoring to God, right? There are lots of ways we can respond when things get hard by seeking relief in a way that doesn't honor God and brings a kind of, of cheap, faux, false peace and joy and comfort that uh, has strings attached to it, right? We can respond to suffering when things get real hard in life by just binging entertainment and and making that our comfort and our refuge. We can throw ourselves into some kind of pursuit, even one that would be good on the surface, right? We could throw ourselves into some kind of pursuit to take our mind off the suffering as opposed to taking those burdens to God himself, casting our cares upon him because he cares for us. We can turn to something like pornography, something to find release and find uh, satisfaction and joy and and a way to control a situation by turning toward pleasures, right, that are forbidden by God and that 
are destructive to our souls, but we can look into those things in moments of duress and, and distress. We can turn to uh, escaping with drugs and alcohol and all other kinds of self-medication. You name it, you fill in the blank. There are so many ways we could respond to suffering by seeking a false savior. That's not Christ. To give us comfort and peace in those moments. Last category here as we're camping out upon the ways we might be prone to respond. When suffering hits, do you find yourself withdrawing from the good and right things of life? Pulling back in, in your marriage, in friendships, and engagement with your brothers and sisters in the church. Withdrawing in response to things being difficult instead of leaning in to be cared for. Do you find uh, yourself excusing laziness in certain areas of faithfulness that you've been called to by God, saying, oh, I just need a break from it all. I can't do this today. And letting that be a continual excuse. Or do you find yourself responding to suffering with a kind of like stoicism that says, well, it just is what it is, right? <laughs> that keeps you from taking those burdens, taking what sorely presses your soul to the Lord, keeps you from taking uh, and seeking counsel and care from the church because it's not going to help anyway, and keeps you from dealing with your suffering uh, because you're not really dealing with the suffering. Do you respond with that kind of withdrawal? If so, the Lord would encourage you to lean in, to seek grace and help in that time of need as opposed to drawing back. Oh, church, we're all prone in some way or another, and probably many ways for, for, for all of us, lots of different ways we could go awry, where we could break the pattern and go outside the lines when it comes to tracing over the template of Christ's suffering. And so will we respond to this by examining ourselves, identifying where we need the Spirit's help to make the shape of our own suffering more and more like the shape of Christ's suffering? Would that be a way we respond to this word this morning? And will we respond with the confidence, with the encouragement, that this kind of change is possible? Because when Christ suffered without any kind of unfaithfulness on his part, he was suffering in that moment for all of our unfaithfulness instead. Because of what he suffered for, he oh, enables us to suffer differently. Because he suffered for us so that our own experience of suffering could be transformed. Suffering to show us where our suffering is headed and motivate us to endure along the way. And this brings us to our second point then. What did Christ do as he experienced suffering? How did he respond? We know what he didn't do. He didn't sin. So what did he do in the face of suffering? What did he do? He trusted God. He trusted God. Simply put, he didn't respond with any unfaithfulness toward God or man, but faithfully waited upon the Lord to act for him and to vindicate him, to set things right. As Peter writes, continuing on in our passage, during the greatest moments of his suffering in his earthly life, second part of verse 23 says, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Jesus do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, Jesus leaves it all in God's hands. As commentator Tom Schreiner says, 
Jesus kept handing over, handing over to God every dimension of his life. He kept handing it over to God in the moment of his suffering and trusting his God and Father to deal with it, to do what was right, to do what was good, to work through that moment of trial and hardship. Jesus was, church, trusting God had good purposes in and through everything he was experiencing. And that God, in the moments of his suffering, in the moments of his trial and arrest and crucifixion, and all that he endured for us and our salvation, in those moments, he was trusting that God was guiding every moment along. Even and especially those moments in which men meant evil against him. And not only that, and Satan tried to destroy him. He was confident. He was trusting. He was believing that in those moments, God was guiding everything along toward a good and just and glorious outcome. And in particular, our text directs us to three ways that he trusted God in the midst of his suffering. First, we see that he was trusting that God was working good through his suffering. And at that, God wasn't just working some good or any good or a good. God was working the greatest of good through the greatest of suffering ever experienced and of evil ever committed. What good was this, church? What good was God working through the sufferings of his son? It was the good that was being worked upon the cross. The good we read about in verses 24 through 25, look with them, or look with me at them. Verse 24, here's the good Christ suffered for. That he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's why we can suffer differently now. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the good that Christ trusted was being worked through his sufferings upon the cross. Jesus, he entrusted himself to God as a sacrifice for our sin. And he suffered for our eternal good. He was living out the prophetic words of Isaiah 53, which are just all over the pages of 1 Peter in the backdrop here. He was fulfilling his mission as the suffering servant, offering himself as the Lamb of God that the Father had willed to crush, to put to grief, to lay upon our iniquities and sins to bear them away forever. Jesus knew his suffering was, was working to deal with everything that had separated us from a holy God. And he went to the cross in order to regather his scattered sheep. That's the good that was being worked in and through the cross. Christ knew this. He entrusted himself to this task and mission and believed his father would receive that sacrifice to the end that he would have a people for himself forever. And that's us. So here's the question, church. If God purposed Jesus' suffering to bring about the greatest of goods, being our salvation, having a people for himself to the praise of his glory forevermore, could he not, if he did that, be purposing our suffering for good as well? 
If he did that with Christ's suffering, could he not be working good through our suffering as well? (laughs) And now, not that our suffering saves us, we're not atoning for any sins on our part, but if he worked the greatest of goods through the greatest of suffering, could he not use the light and momentary afflictions that we experience to work good for us as well? Could he not be using our suffering to remind us that Christ himself, and under the comforts of this world, he is our greatest treasure? Could he not be using that suffering to conform us more and more to the image of he who is our greatest good? Could he not be using our suffering to teach us how to be content, (laughs) to teach us and, and free us from bitterness and discontent and ingratitude? teaching us to be content with what we have because it's his grace that we have it at all. Could he not be purposing our suffering to allow us to be loved and cared for by his church? To to be able to experience something together that we wouldn't experience otherwise as we weep with those who weep. Could he not be using our suffering to serve as a witness? to the non-Christians in our lives and the unbelieving world around us so that they might be caused to ask, how can these people have such joy in a time like this? How can they withstand this and, and smile and laugh and not be crushed by it? Might cause them to say, man, Jesus must really be worth it if they can embrace all this hardship for his name must be really something to this Jesus. Could not God work through our suffering oh, to get the attention of our neighbors, of our unsaved friends and family members and coworkers? Could he not work so much good through these afflictions? Next, we see that Jesus was trusting that God would bring his justice to bear on all the badness, all the wrongness involved in his suffering. In the midst of his suffering, to continue the quote, Jesus kept handing over to God every dimension of his life, including the fate of his enemies. He entrusted the fate of his enemies to the one who judges all things justly. And he's confident in the moment of his suffering that God would bring the justice to those who mistreated him. And so for this reason, church, He does not aim to defend himself. He doesn't feel the need to respond to their false accusations by pleading his case until he's blue in the face trying to get them to believe who are mistreating him. So, he does not give in to the inclination that we all have to get even with someone who is wronging or disrespecting us. He believes that the just judge will get even for him and bring justice to bear. And church, would we walk in his steps here? Would we trace and retrace over this part of the template and trust that as Jesus trusted, that God will not fail to bring justice, that he will not fail to right and respond to every wrong so that we don't have to, but we can entrust it to him that God would bring the justice. And this justice, it comes in two ways. First, the justice that God would be bringing is the justice that Christ himself bore for sinners. 
the justice he bore for sinners like those who slandered him and crucified him in the first century and like us who once lived our lives denying that he was Lord. The justice that he experienced for us upon the cross. Jesus knew God was bringing justice to the wrongs of the people he came to save by punishing them in his own body upon the cross. But second, Jesus knew of the justice that would come in the form of judgment on the last day. Which means sometimes in this life there might be wrongs that don't get righted, but we as Christians, we have the hope and the assurance and the confidence that that doesn't mean the guilty go unpunished. That doesn't, that doesn't mean they're not dealt with because Jesus knew and we can know that there is a day coming when everything that is in the dark will be made to be in the light. And God will deal with everything. Every wrong will be righted and Christ knew this. And so he knew that for his people he was bearing their sin and taking their justice, but he also knew that a judgment would be coming on the last day for all who rejected the Son. That no wrong that has ever been done to God or to his image bearers would ever go unpunished. And at the end of the day, it would be a situation where either every sin upon him would be laid for his people, or that sin would be born in eternity by the one who was unrepentant and had not received the Son. He knew justice would be done. So he entrusted himself to God to bring that about. Jesus, he trusted that in his suffering, God was working good, God was bringing justice, and finally, he trusted that God would not forsake him in his suffering. He trusted that God would not forsake him in his suffering. In other words, he believes that there's something on the other side of his suffering, and he commits himself to God with the confidence that he's going to enter into this experience. And so here's the question, church. What did God do? What did God do in response to the suffering of his son? What did he do? He raised him from the dead. The cross, the grave, was not the end of his story. No, God raised him from the dead. And Jesus entrusted himself to God. He, the perfect son of man, who alone had earned and merited eternal life through his perfect obedience to God. He knew what was coming to him. He knew, as the psalmist looked forward to in Psalm 16, that God would not allow his Holy One, his Messiah, to suffer decay. He would not abandon him to Sheol, that is the place of the dead, but that he would raise him up and bring him into the fullness of joy at his right hand. He knew, church, that glory awaited him. So Jesus entrusted himself to he who judges justly. And what did the just judge do? But raised him from the dead. Suffering was not the end of his story. And in this way, church, Jesus himself is a living illustration, is he not, of Paul's theology in Romans 8. God was so for his son that even sin and death and Satan could not get in the way of his foreness for him. Not even those forces which overcome and get the best of all of us, not even those forces could stand against Jesus. They could not separate him from the love of his Father. They could not stop God's purpose to glorify and exalt his Son. They could not and would not have the last word. 
Instead, the outcome of Jesus' story is that all his suffering gave way to glory. Every moment, church, of, of weakness, of grief, of sorrow and sadness gave way to triumph and victory and the dawn of a new day ushered in by the rising of the sun. And his resurrection is the proof of this. Last week, we learned that we could have the assurance that God was for us because he gave his son upon the cross. This week, we can have the assurance of where our suffering is headed because of what he did in his resurrection. His resurrection, it's the proof, it's our proof that the causes of our suffering, namely our sin, the experience of death and decay in a fallen world, and Satan himself, the enemy of our souls. His resurrection is our proof that the causes of our suffering, get this, have been defeated. In his resurrection, God demonstrates that Christ has conquered these foes, these enemies. He demonstrates that even as now in our experience in life, they, they, they seem to linger on the battlefield, they've lost the war and they're marching on toward their ultimate defeat. They won't win the day. In his suffering, Christ has conquered the causes of our suffering. In his resurrection, he proves to us that there is an indestructible, incorruptible, and eternal life on the other side of even the worst experiences of suffering. His own story, his trajectory, his model proves that to us. And so for us, all of us who have trusted in Christ and are united to him by faith, his resurrection is our confidence that our suffering is going somewhere. And that's good news. Oh man, that anchors our souls, doesn't it? Through his resurrection, we ourselves, as Peter begins his letter back in chapter 1, we ourselves have been raised to a living hope that the new creation which began in the resurrection of Christ and will one day be fully realized, we have the hope that we'll live forever because of this. In a world where everything has been made new, every wrong has been righted, and sin and suffering and sadness are no more. This is the hope we have because of his resurrection. And this morning, if you're hearing these words and you've never trusted in this Jesus before and laid laid hold of the living hope uh, of him by faith. I can assure you of two things this morning, if that's not yet your experience. One, in this life, you will continue to suffer. That's a reality. That's not going to change. Regardless of how you respond to this message right now, suffering will be there. But, number two, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all those who trust in him have a hope that is as sure as his tomb is empty. That the end of their story is a world in which all things have been made new. That's true today. And you can have this assurance today that not only does your suffering matter, but it's being purposed by God to prepare you to experience that new world to the fullest. You can be confident that your story is going somewhere and that that somewhere is eternal life with the God who is your greatest good. So turn away from other so-called saviors and comforts and relief in the form of suffering. Any other methods of dealing with that suffering, any attempts to find peace and rest aside from God and his son and believe in Jesus Christ today. 
trusting that in his cross he's taken away your sin of rejecting this God. And in his resurrection, he's paved your way to life and joy forevermore. In church, as we come to a close of our journey with Habakkuk through suffering and sorrow to peace and joy, would we freshly hang our hats and plant our feet on the firm ground of this confidence? That because of Christ's story and the way it ended in glory, ours will as well. And as we trace out the pattern of his suffering in our lives, let me leave you with the final form of the shape that we're making here. Near the end of his letter, Peter writes this to remind us of the end of our story. He says, And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. This is where it's all headed, church. Our rest, our joy, our uninterrupted, ever-increasing, all-satisfying experience of his glory. This is where it's all going. Would we suffer well with the confidence that this story is ours? Cross of Grace Church, would we suffer like Christ? Faithfully enduring the groaning of this life with that sure expectation of glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, we thank you that in your suffering, you've saved us and you've given us the shape and the pattern and the outline of how we are to live as we journey on toward our eternal home. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that we can respond more and more like you did. For the glory of your name, for the joy of our souls, and for the good of this church and our neighbors who would see it and would see you working good in and through those moments of suffering in our lives. Be glorified, we ask and pray. Amen.